How many of you have ever overcorrected? Heard that term before, overcorrected, overcompensated? It's a weird term. It's a weird term to correct something too much, to make it too correct. But uh, as we got through this past week in South Bend, the carnage of overcorrection was all around us. I went to the library. People were overcorrecting everywhere, skidding across roadways into ditches. I saw light posts and signs on the ground. Sometimes overcorrecting a problem can be worse than the problem itself. It's not just steering against the skid that provides the evidence of overcorrection. Sometimes it's in the way we live our lives. Sometimes we internalize our failures, become so obsessed about not repeating them that we lose sight of ourselves and we lose sight of what's really important. Now, this morning we're starting a new series called Heroes You Haven't Heard Of. I actually put this series together back in the fall when Pastor Brian first mentioned the idea of this season of story and sabbatical. I was excited for it. I am excited for it. I was excited for these stories to preach through me when I wrote these outlines in the first place, but today I'm coming at it a little differently. Today, I'm excited to let these stories preach to me, and you can just watch. I recognize that these stories have something to say to me, that they're going to help me address an overcorrection I've made in my own life. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, and then I'm going to tell you a Bible story about a woman whose name we don't even know. But first, I want to ask you to pray with me. God, as we dig into your Holy Scripture this morning, help us to also dig in to examine our own hearts and lives. Help us to ask painful questions, the ones that will sting but the ones that will lead to growth. God, you are the potter, we are the clay. You are the master gardener, and we are your creation. The work that you do in our lives is not always easy for us, but we trust that you know best how to help us grow. Help us grow together today, God. Amen. The last time I was up here, I asked you a question. I asked you, what's next? I told you that for a long time I didn't have an answer for that question. I told you that I didn't think there was an answer for me for that question. I told you I felt useless. And then afterwards, so many of you told me that you'd had moments like that too. Many of you told me that you were in the middle of those moments that day, that morning. We all do that sometimes, and it takes a God-sized love to pull us out of it. That word, useless, has been for me a waking nightmare, a spoken curse a falsehood that I came to recognize as a truth. I spent time in a therapist's office discussing that word, and then a month ago I preached a sermon about it, and then I overcorrected. I spent my time and my energy frantically trying to prove my own usefulness, sometimes not to anyone besides myself. I cataloged, I had a journal where I wrote down all the good things that I did, like proof that my life was worth the oxygen I was breathing. And in the middle of that, I missed the point. See, the Christian life is not about receiving credit or proving worth. It's not about recognition or notoriety. And I'm excited to begin this series today because we're diving into the unsung heroes, people who did good for the sake of good, who served for the sake of God, and who did the right things for the sakes of others. In many cases, we know these stories but not their names. In a few cases, 
We know their names, but not their words. And I'm just going to um, give you a little spoiler. For the last Sunday of February, we know almost nothing about any of the three people that I'm going to talk about, and I have no idea how I'm going to talk about it. We're going to talk about heroes from places in the Bible that aren't so famous, and we're going to use our imaginations to fill in some blanks. All of that leads us to Naaman, and if you want to follow along or read this later, we're going to find his story in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now, some of you may, may know this story. If you're a Bible scholar, an Old Testament guru, you might know this story. You might have heard this before. For a lot of people, we're off to a really good start here because maybe Naaman is a guy that you haven't heard of before, and he's from a place called Aram, which I bet you couldn't find on a map. Now, this may not mean a lot to you about Aram and Naaman, but here's what you need to know. Aram, the, the kingdom of Aram, was an enemy of Israel. Okay, Aram was an enemy of Israel, and Naaman was the most successful general in the kingdom of Aram. In the story and the histories of Kings and Chronicles, we experience all of the wars and battles that God's people would endure to secure and keep their promised land, and Aram were some of the guys on the other side. Through the lens of Jewish history, the kingdom of Aram were the bad guys. That makes Naaman one of the, the bad guys. So the story continues. It says, Naaman was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now, leprosy was a bad thing back in the day. Like, it's still a bad thing, but it was an especially bad thing back in the day and not just because it was a debilitating, painful, life-threatening disease. It was actually like way worse than that. Leprosy, once it was bad enough, once people knew about it, it could cost a person everything. People were terrified of leprosy, terrified of catching it. That's why the lepers were cast off, sent to live forever for the, for the duration of their lives, apart from the rest of the world, apart from their community, confined to colonies with other lepers, unemployable, unlovable, untouchable. They would live their lives begging and reliant on the meager charity of others. That's why it was so very radical when Jesus visited a leper colony, why it was so shocking when he laid his hands on them. And during the time of 2 Kings, okay, we are not very historically close to Jesus, and so there's not a lot of hope for Naaman if his leprosy gets too bad. He's not been cast out yet, so we can assume that this painful skin disease that he has must be somewhere hidden beneath his clothing, but it must be spreading. And once his leprosy becomes public, his military honors won't be able to save him, his wealth and his status and his fame won't be able to save him. Even the favor of the king will be insufficient to, present, to prevent his fate as an untouchable. This isn't lower back pain. It's not diabetes or any other disease or malady. Leprosy is going to take his comfort, his wealth, his status, his family, his friends. 
And then he'll probably live for several years that way before it takes his life. Naaman really, really, really does not want to have leprosy. Here's verse 2. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. Now, spoiler alert, we are not going to learn the name of this servant girl. We are also not even going to learn the name of Naaman's wife, and that is its own gender nightmare. But take a look at what else is happening here with this servant girl, because this is the part that's really bonkers, okay? She's an Israelite. She is a prisoner of war, made a servant during a wartime raid. She has literally been kidnapped, likely during an activity that was planned and plotted by Naaman, the commander of the army. He has taken her away from her country and her family. He may have even been responsible for the killings of people that she knows. And that's what makes it so shocking when she says this, "'If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria.'" He would cure him of his leprosy. The servant girl, whose name we don't know, says that to Naaman's wife, whose name we don't know, and then she passes the message along to Naaman, and Naaman does it. He does it. He goes to the king of Aram and asks permission. The king of Aram grants his permission. King of Aram grants permission, get this, for the commander of his army to go visit the enemy king to receive healing for his affliction. It's almost unconscionable, right? There's no way this is going to end well, right? These two nations are literally at war with one another, and one king wants to call a timeout because his best player is injured, and they hopes the enemies will fix him up and send him back into battle. Now, can you imagine the desperation that Naaman must have felt to even pursue this plan? He is placing his trust in the hands of a servant girl, one who comes from the land of his enemy, one who he took against her will. He is marching through enemy territory into the enemy base to consult with the enemy king. Every enemy warrior will know him and loathe him and have a wide open shot at him. What could possess Naaman to take such a risk? Well, he's desperate. He's tried everything else. He's tried every medicine, every home remedy, every old wives' tale, every person who claimed they had a magic spell or a secret cure, and none of it has worked. His disease is spreading. He is about to lose everything to have his whole life taken away from him. For his part, the king of Aram knows he will lose the war without Naaman. It's worth a shot at least, even if it's a one in a hundred chance. If an Israelite in the palace strikes Naaman down with a sword, well, they won't be able to take anything from Naaman that he wasn't about to lose anyway. Sometimes in our lowest moments, when we've tried anything and everything, that's when we're desperate enough to find God. Recovering alcoholics call it rock bottom. Despite his fame and his fortune and his wealth and his power and his status, that's exactly where Naaman is. Let's see how it turns out for him. 
So Naaman and the king, they recognize that this plan is like stupid insane. They send Naaman with 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing, and a handful of servants. Now let's be clear here, 6,000 shekels of gold is an absolute boatload of money. They are not just counting on the benevolence of the king and the prophet. They're trying to buy their way into healing. Naaman takes a letter from the king of Aram that says this. It says, uh, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. I want to know what the rest of the letter said. Please cure Naaman of his leprosy so that he can get back to the important work of raiding your land, pillaging your villages, and enslaving your people. The leprosy is really kind of a roadblock impeding our continued warlike efforts toward you and your people. So please get him fixed up so he can get back to work. Sincerely, your enemy, the king of Aram. But they were desperate. What other choice did they have? Now, before I uh, go much further, let me say this. The thing that is most important is that you know God, that you have faith in the restoration power of God, that you know the resurrection power of Jesus. It doesn't matter if it was your first choice or your last resort. The parable Jesus tells is about the people who worked the fields all day and the people who worked the fields for the last half an hour of the day, and they all got the same reward. Knowing God, however you get there, is the most important thing. Naaman has spent a lifetime at war against the very power that is his last chance to save his life. So Naaman gets to the king, asks the king to cure his leprosy. Now notice, that's not quite what the servant girl told him to do. The servant girl told him to go to the prophet. But Naaman goes to the king because Naaman is a big deal. And Naaman deals with kings. Well, the king of Israel, he freaks out. He's confused. He's confused enough to tear his own robes. Anyone ever gotten confused enough to just like start tearing your clothes in half? Happened to me this morning when I was doing the wordle. Um, he says this, why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Is he trying to pick a fight? Right? This is the enemy commander. He just marches in here. This has got to be a trick. I don't know how it's a trick, but this feels like it's got to be a trick. Like uh, if um, King Kim Jong-un showed up at Walter Reed Hospital unannounced with a half million dollars because he needed help with his athlete's foot, like, people would be skeptical. The king of Israel thinks he's getting played. He just can't figure out how yet. But Elisha, the prophet, the one who Naaman was supposed to see in the first place, he hears about this exchange, and he tells the king that he will help Naaman. Naaman goes to Elisha's house. And do you know what Elisha tells him? Some of you know the story. You know what Elisha tells him, or at least you think you know what Elisha tells him. Actually, Elisha doesn't tell him anything. It's a weird detail in the story, but it's one of my favorite details in the story. Elisha sends a messenger, 
Elisha doesn't even meet with Naaman himself. He sends a messenger. And if you're Naaman, you're a big deal. You are an important guy. You got an audience straight away with the king. And now this lowly prophet won't even meet with you. He's sending a messenger. That's a little insulting. The messenger tells Naaman that he needs to go wash himself seven times in the Jordan. And your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Naaman does not like this plan. It's insulting to him. It's disgusting to him. It's unimaginable to him. See, for people, especially in the time of the Old Testament, water was extremely symbolic. The water that formed the basis for their communities was sacred. Rivers were, after all, the very thing that brought life. The Jordan was the holy river of the Jewish people. It's where Jesus would be baptized later. But for Naaman, a man of the kingdom of Aram, this was blasphemy. It would be like if I had atomic dandruff and you told me that I needed to rub my scalp with dirt from the most holy and hallowed ground on earth, dirt from near home plate at Bush Stadium, the home of the St. Louis Cardinals, I shudder at the thought of it, and so did Naaman. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not the Abana and Farpar, the rivers of the Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? See that pride coming through? He says, couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. I thought he would come out to me and stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me. But Elisha did none of those things. He didn't even come out to Naaman, right? He sent a messenger. Big, important Naaman didn't even get an audience with the prophet. His personal pride is hurt. His hometown pride is crushed. And he's so mad. He is so mad that he is ready to march off and wait to be riddled by leprosy to death. And maybe that's how the story would have ended, except for the advice of another set of unnamed servants. This is 2 Kings 5.13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, Dude, I'm paraphrasing here. They said, Dude, we came all the way here. We marched through enemy territory, risked our lives. We swallowed our pride the moment we came here. He wants you to take a bath in a river. It's at least worth a shot, right? So Naaman acquiesces. He swallows the last remaining shreds of his pride. And he washes in the Jordan River again and again and again and again and again and again. And just as he was told, Naaman was healed. He returns to Elisha, and now that Naaman is broken with his pride, Elisha meets with him directly. Naaman stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. Remember, Naaman has an absolute pile of money, and he's ready to hand it all over. His leprosy is healed, but Elisha won't take the money. Instead, Naaman loads up his mules with dirt from around the Jordan River so that he can go back home and worship the one true God on the one true God's holy land when he returns to the kingdom of Aram. And then Elisha says, go in 
peace. It's not just an empty farewell. It's not a figure of speech. Remember, these places are literally at war with one another. Go in peace is a promise, a request, and a command all at once. Now, the story goes on a little bit longer, and you should absolutely read the second part of this story at home because it's worth your time. But it doesn't go on long enough to follow Naaman all the way back home. It doesn't go on long enough to tell us what happened when he told his family and his king about the one true God. In fact, the next time that we catch up with the servant girl who started this whole story, just kidding, we never catch up with her again. But she is the unsung hero of this story. All she did was she spoke up. She didn't even speak directly to the person who had the problem. She just talked about her God. She just talked about her faith. She just told someone about the goodness of God. And that's what set all of this into motion. All she did, she spoke up sometimes. That's all we're asked to do. Nothing grand, nothing amazing, nothing headline-grabbing or ego-feeding. Mark 16, 15 says it best. Go into the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is a season for us of collecting and telling stories. But I also want you to go out and live a story. This week, your story begins when you tell someone about Jesus. Amen.